I'm Jorge Salazar, reporting from the Texas Advanced Computing Center, part of the University of Texas at Austin. The SC14 Supercomputing Conference takes place this year in the city of New Orleans, November 16th through 21st. Scientists, engineers, educators, students, IT professionals, and industry meet at SC14 to share the latest in high-performance computing, networking, storage, and analysis. Computer scientists from the University of Texas at Austin's Institute for Computational Engineering and Sciences, or ISIS, teamed up with researchers at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign to present work at the technical program of SE14. It's titled Parallelization of Reordering Algorithms for Bandwidth and Wavefront Reduction. Here to explain the work and to talk a little about SE14 is Keshav Pingali, a professor in the Computer Science Department at UT Austin and a member of ISIS. Dr. Pingali, thank you for speaking with us today. Thank you. Now, the theme of the SC14 conference is HPC matters. Um, why does high-performance computing matter to you, and why should it matter to anyone else? Well, HPC, as you pointed out, stands for high-performance computing. We're all used to this idea that our laptops and cell phones become faster every time we buy a new one. And so uh, what we can do is to put a few thousand or a few hundred thousand of the same kind of processors that go into laptops, put them together in one room, make them all talk to each other, communicate with each other, and then you get a hundred thousand times or a million times the performance that a single laptop has. And so nowadays we have uh, centers that have machines that are capable of about a petaflop or 10 petaflops. So that's a few thousand trillion uh, computations every second. So now you could wonder, well, what is it that you do with all of these computations? Uh, what we do with uh, the, all of these computations is that we build models of uh, physical systems that we want to build. So for example, in the old days, the way that uh, airplanes were designed, what, ha what people used to do was to build small models of them and then they used to do wind tunnel tests. So they literally put the model of the airplane they wanted to build into a wind tunnel and then they saw whether the plane would stay afloat or not. Uh, what we do nowadays instead is uh, we have equations that define what happens when air flows over a wing and then we solve those equations on these big parallel computers, and then they give you all the information that you need for whether the plane is actually going to stay in the air or whether it's going to stall and fall down. And so uh, the reason for doing this is that you can get far more detailed information when you do these simulations, and also it's a lot cheaper than doing wind tunnel tests. And so if you look at how the Boeing 747 was uh, designed, and then you look at uh, more recent ones like the 777, well, it turns out they do far fewer wind tunnel tests, and they do a lot more of these simulations. And for that, you really need these big high-performance computers. So that's just one example, a very high-tech example of how we use high-performance computing. But yesterday, we had somebody from Procter & Gamble who was visiting, and he was telling us that even the way that they design diapers nowadays at Procter & Gamble involves a lot of simulation of different shapes of diapers and whether they're watertight and you know things like that. So basically this idea of simulation is something that has become a very, very important part of science and engineering. And that has to be done on these big parallel computers so that you get the results back quickly. 
Tell us about where you um, fit into this process. Just a little bit of background about yourself. Okay, so uh, as I said earlier, I'm a professor in the computer science department. And uh, what I do is look at how to make it easier for engineers and scientists to use these large parallel high-performance computers. So the engineers and scientists who want to do these simulations, they're typically people who do, for example, fluid dynamics or they are doing structural engineering. What they really want to do is to focus on what we call the domain science. So they want to focus their efforts on formulating these equations and designing the shapes of the aircraft, or the diapers, et cetera, et cetera. And they don't want to spend quite as much time in actually programming the high-performance computers in order to do these simulations. But then that means somebody has to take care of making it easier for them to use the high-performance computers that we have nowadays. And so that's where computer scientists come in. So what I do is I work closely with people who want to do these kinds of simulations on high-performance computers. I look at the kind of computations that they want to do, and then uh, we try to build what are known as programming abstractions, so basically high-level uh, high programming languages, so that they can express the computations they want to do at a very high level of abstraction. And then we take care of taking these formulations and actually producing efficient parallel code that runs well on these high-performance computing uh, centers. And so that involves uh, basically knowing a fair amount about the architecture of uh, these high-performance computers. It also involves being able to talk to engineers and physicists and scientists and so on so that you understand what they're trying to do on these high-performance computers. And so ISIS is a great place to be, and the University of Texas, because we have access to all these great machines attack, so we can try out our ideas. And then I also have wonderful colleagues in ISIS who are doing these simulations that are just down the hall. So if I have an idea of how to simplify their job, I can go ask them whether this would actually work or not, get them to try out some of our software. And then in the computer science department, I have other colleagues, other computer science colleagues, who work on related problems. And so this is a great place to be for this kind of work. Tell us about a paper that you're bringing to SE14. It's titled Parallelization of Reordering Algorithms for Bandwidth and Wavefront Reduction. Um, what are the main findings that you're presenting at SE14? So this is, uh, first of all, I should say it's joint work with some of my colleagues at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. So Maria Garzaran and Constantine Karantasis and a couple of guys in my group, Andrew Lenhart and Donald Wynn. Uh, the way to describe uh, what we've done is this. We talked earlier about how uh, scientists and engineers want to do these simulations of things like fluid flow. So the way that the fluid flow is modeled is using what are known as partial differential equations. So this is basically calculus, and like people, computers, it turns out, are very bad at doing calculus. What computers are good at doing is doing uh, arithmetic, and in particular, they're good at uh, solving systems of linear equations. Now, systems of linear equations sounds very complicated, but it's basically what we learned in middle school. So you have 
uh, two equations like say 3x plus 4y equals 7 and 7x plus 2y equals 4 and then you're asked to find what the values of x and y are that satisfy these two equations and then we know how to do it we multiply and subtract one equation from the other and so on and so forth well this is essentially solving a linear system except that this is solving a very small linear system it's what is known as a two by two system because you have two equations and two unknowns x and y what we do in uh, uh, running these big simulations is we take the calculus problem and then we convert it into a, a system of linear equations that is solved on the computer because that's about the only thing that computers really do very, very well. And so uh, that's a process that's known as discretization. And there are different ways of doing discretization known as finite differences, finite elements, and so on. And some of the people in ISIS are world experts in those techniques. So what ultimately happens is you get a very large system of linear equations. Large meaning it could be 10 million unknowns and 10 million equations. And you need to solve that system. And if you get the solution to that linear system, you know the 10 million unknowns, the values of those, then you get an approximation to this differential equation that you can't solve exactly. So now this system of linear equations, instead of writing it down in terms of individual values, numbers, like we do, it turns out it's a lot easier when you're dealing with large numbers of equations to think in what's known as matrix terms. So matrix is just a table. And so you basically take all of the coefficients, like 3x plus 4y, you take the 3 and the 4, and then you put them into this table in a very systematic way. And it turns out that it's a lot easier to compute and think about algorithms when you have this tabular representation, this matrix representation. Now, if you are given a bunch of numbers and you're asked to put them into a table, well, it's intuitively obvious that you have many choices as to the order in which you put these things into a table. So, for example, you could have the coefficients from the first equation as the first row of your table, and then the coefficients from the second equation in the second row, but you could just as well have swapped the two rows, and so the first equation or the first row comes from the second equation and so on. So basically you have a lot of flexibility in how you take the individual numbers and you put them into the table before you go and solve the linear system. So uh, people have found uh, that there are some organizations for these numbers in this matrix that are more efficient than other organizations. And so what is done when you solve these large linear systems is first you do what's called reordering. So you basically take the table that's given to you and then you rearrange all the numbers within this table so that it's more cash friendly as it's called. So you reorder all the numbers, you reorganize them within the table and then you go and solve the linear system. Now people know how to do this reorganization on one processor, so sequentially as we call it but people had not been able to figure out how to do it in parallel. And parallelism is the name of the game for reducing the computation time. And so what people have done traditionally is they did the reorganization of the numbers within this table, within this matrix, on one processor, and then they would go and solve the linear system in parallel. But then this reorganization became a bottleneck because that is being done one step at a time. So what we figured out in this paper is that some of the techniques that we use in the Galois system can be used to do this reorganization in parallel very effectively. And so that reduces the overall solution time that you have. 
And so what we were able to show is that uh, depending upon how big the matrices are and so on and so forth, but you can speed up the computations roughly by a factor of two by doing the reorganization in parallel using our system. You mentioned the Galois project. Um, what is that? So the Galois project is a project that I started when I came to UT about uh, six years ago. Uh, until that time, most of the systems, that the programming languages, the programming abstractions, and so on, that people had developed to make parallel programming easier for scientists and engineers, uh, dealt with uh, what are known as uh, regular problems. And so one way to think about that is that uh, uh, we talked earlier about how we have this table of numbers. And so these techniques worked very well when that table of numbers was completely f full of values and didn't have any zeros within it. So if the table has a lot of zeros, then the matrix is said to be a sparse matrix. If, on the other hand, you have some non-zero value everywhere, then that's called a dense matrix. So the techniques that people had worked very well for matrices that were dense, but uh, they didn't have many techniques for uh, solving uh, these sorts of reordering problems, for example, when the matrix was sparse. Another uh, thing that people didn't quite know how to do, and this is related to the sparse matrix problem, is when you're doing computations on what are known as graphs. And so a graph is basically a structure like, think of a road map. So you have cities and then you have roads that connect these cities. And then you may want to find, for example, what is the shortest distance from uh, Austin to Washington, D.C. So that's a typical example of a graph problem. So again, people didn't have very good techniques for solving these kinds of graph problems in parallel. And again, it's the fact that uh, these roadmaps tend to be very sparse. So not every city is connected immediately to every other city by a direct route, right? So the sparsity is what caused problems, and people didn't quite know how to handle that effectively. So what the Galois project has shown is that there are certain techniques that we have developed where uh, a lot of the job of finding what can be done in parallel and what can run in parallel is actually done while executing the program itself. So it turns out when the matrix is dense, then you can actually find the parallelism at compile time before you run the program because the parallelism then is independent of where the non-zeros are in the matrix. Whereas once you get to sparse data, once you get to graphs, then a lot of the work of finding what can be done in parallel has to be done at runtime. And that's what the Galois system does. So it's a bunch of libraries and a very sophisticated runtime system that my group has built that can take these kinds of sparse problems, graph problems, and effectively find what can be done in parallel while running the program itself. Now, you, um, you tested this application of your model to these reorderings um, on Stampede, and I want to hear about some of your experiences using Stampede in your research. So we use TAC machines all the time, and it's been a real godsend to have uh, TAC over here because we get lots of time on TAC, and uh, we also have all these wonderful consultants who help us to tune the code and so on. So we're very thankful that we have this uh, connection to TAC. Uh, I use TAC resources in two ways. So one is for my research. So since our job is to make it easier for people to do parallel programming, obviously we need a parallel platform like Stampede to test our ideas out. And so uh, what we do is uh, when we come up with new ideas, like for example this parallel reordering that we're going to report on 
at SC. We first test it out on some of our small machines that we have in my group. But those only have like maybe eight cores or 10 cores. And so you can't really test whether this idea scales, as we say. But once it's crossed that particular hurdle, then what we do is we run it on Stampede. And then we check to see whether it actually works well when you're using hundreds of nodes, for example, on uh, Stampede. So that's uh, one place where we've used it. Uh, the other thing that TAG does very well is it brings in cutting edge technology. And so, for example, uh, we work with uh, the Intel Phi processors. And so that's a very new uh, architecture. And uh, there are, uh, we were one of the first sites to get access to the Intel Phi processors. And so we had a bunch of summer interns this year from France, for example, who actually ran some of our Galois codes on the Intel Phi's and saw whether the hardware that was there in the Intel Phi's was able to exploit this parallelism or not. And uh, some of those findings we reported back to Intel, for example, because they were interested in what we found. So TAC resources have been wonderful for our research program. But in addition to that, I also use it when I teach classes. So every year I teach a course on high-performance parallel computing. And so the only way to teach students ultimately is they have to go and start uh, practicing what I'm teaching them in class. So there are lots of assignments, some of which involve the Galois system, others involve uh, systems like OpenMP, MPI, and so on. So they have to go write this code, and it's always a big thrill for them to go to TAC and actually use some of the largest open machines in the world. So I tell them how lucky they are that they have access to these machines and they get thrilled and they actually run programs on these cutting edge machines. So we use stack resources both for research and for teaching. Dr. Bengali, if you could tell us how does uh, your research uh, relate to ordinary people, to non-scientists? Well, what we're trying to do is to make the programs that you run, run faster on parallel computers. And so just to give you an example of a, 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 a problem that we're working on right now, uh, in addition to working with these computational science people who are solving these differential equations using these methods that we talked about, finite differences, finite elements, and so on, uh, we're also working with people at UT who do machine learning. And so one of the things that they're interested in is uh, what's called a recommender system. So we're all used to this idea that if you watch a bunch of movies on Netflix and you give some ratings to those movies, well, then Netflix starts making some recommendations to you. You may want to watch this movie. You may enjoy watching this movie, right? So what they have built in there is a recommender system. Similarly, if you go to Amazon, for example, and you buy a bunch of things, well, then you start seeing recommendations from Amazon about what else you may want to buy. So the way that that's done is uh, by means of uh, a technique that's known as a recommendation system. And it turns out that if you look inside the algorithms that are used within recommendation systems, for example, then uh, it's again a graph in there. And the graph in this case is not like a roadmap, where there are cities and uh, roads between cities. But it's a graph in which the nodes represent users and the things that they have bought. And then there is an edge between a user and a thing that they've bought if you have actually bought that item and you gave it some rating. And so 
Again, it turns out that what these recommender systems do is a big graph computation. And since that's the kind of thing that we do well, what we are doing is working with our machine learning colleagues in order to do these recommendations faster than what uh, people do right now. So there is actually a big conference on just recommendation systems has become that important. And so uh, next year we plan to submit a paper because we have one of the fastest recommendation systems uh, right now using Galois. So that's an example of something that uh, if we are successful, uh, you won't really see it as the end user, as somebody who goes to Netflix and buys movies and so on. However, underneath all of that, the recommendations that are being given to you will be generated using these kinds of very fast techniques. What is next uh, in your research? Well, the next thing that uh, we want to do is to get more into machine learning and uh, uh, help speed up a lot of different algorithms that people use in machine learning. So, so far, a lot of my research has been driven by people doing computational science. So people doing finite differences, finite elements, and so on. And uh, there's still a lot of research to do. We work very closely with people doing uh, finite elements and uh, finite differences. But uh, we're also looking at people doing other kinds of problems. And so just to give you an example of one application area which is different from the ones that we've talked about, uh, uh, we're looking, we're uh, starting to work with people who are actually designing the chips, the hardware on which all of our computers are based. And so there is a process uh, in this design that's known as uh, layout and routing. So basically you need to figure out where the transistors go or whatever modules you have, how to place them on the computer chip and how to wire up all of these computer chips that are there on your computer. And so there are some very sophisticated algorithms for doing that because uh, basically you can't have wires that cross each other because then of course you have a short and so on. So you need to be able to route these wires so that uh, you don't have these crossovers and so on. So it's called placement and routing. And uh, there's a big community that uh, looks into ways of doing this very efficiently. But what we have found is that most of their algorithms are sequential. They're executed one step at a time and are relatively slow. So we've started working with people in the FPGA community, in the architecture community, who've taken the Galois system and they've been able to parallelize some of their algorithms, getting an order of magnitude improvement in the running time just by using the Galois system to do the placement and routing in parallel. So what we're doing now is we think our technology has reached a point, a level of maturity, and our system has reached a level of maturity where we'd like to branch out to many other application areas. Basically, any place where people have a graph, we think we have something that they might be interested in. And so we are working very closely with people in machine learning because, again, most of their problems involve these big sparse graphs. We're working with people in FPGA placement and routing, and we're constantly on the lookout for other areas where we could get people interested in using our system. You've been listening to Keshaw Pingali of the Institute for Computational Engineering and Sciences at the University of Texas at Austin. For the Texas Advanced Computing Center, I'm Jorge Salazar.